Throughout American history, we have had consistent voices that have spoken for us in the public square. Men like Thomas Jefferson, Mark Twain, Frederick Douglass, and John Steinbeck are examples of those who have captured well how Americans were thinking in their respective eras. The American comedian Bob Hope is another example of one who often represented America's voice around the globe. As he traveled around the world leading these benefit concerts, he would speak as an American for Americans. On one such occasion, he was asked about his religious views, to which he quipped, I do all these benefits for all religions. I would hate to blow the hereafter on a technicality. His view was that religion, well, essentially all religions, were the same. That as Americans, we viewed in this particular time frame and were growing to understand in, in the eras in which he lived, sort of pluralism that we know today. One could describe our current cultural views on religion as a relativistic pragmatism. In other words, truth and the religion based on that truth is merely whatever you and I want it to be. You and I are the determiners of that which is true and that which is false. More than that, it is based on a pragmatic philosophy defined as what works is what is right. Or, in the scientific realm, what is observable must inherently be true. But friends, for Orthodox Christianity, truth is essential to our shared understanding together. We understand that Scripture and Scripture alone, not the church, not uh, a, a presbytery, uh, not a bishop, but the, but the Scriptures define what is true and what is false. Historic Christianity confesses that the God we worship has spoken not through intermediaries, but through His Word. To use the language from our statement of faith, the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of Himself to man. The statement goes on to say it is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. Friends, this is what we confess as a congregation. And this is what the Bible teaches. Thus, when we come to the letter of Colossae, we begin to understand that God is declaring truth. We understand that this letter is God's Word to man. And that God is marking off His people by His Word. This is what Paul will write to the church in verses 5 and 6. He'll say, Of this you have heard before in the Word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You see, truth is essential for our life together. 
If we're confused about what is true, then we will be confused as a congregation. And so, as we'll see this morning, Paul is writing to us in this letter an authoritative message from God himself. That that we, as Christians, grow in maturity by submitting our lives to the truth revealed in God's Word. You know, a lot of times Christians will talk about, well, I'm trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. And no doubt God gives us wisdom by His Spirit. But if, friend, if you want to know God's will, you, you don't need to go out on the lake. You, you don't need to go out and, and look at the stars. You, you don't need to necessarily, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, you, you don't need to come in here and, and just pontificate a bit with us, but rather you need to go to the Word. You see, in the Word is where we find the will of God revealed. In other words, as Christians, we grow in proportion to our submission to the Word of God. You'll never grow as a Christian. This is the truth we're going to consider over the next few weeks throughout the summer. You'll never grow as a Christian if you do not submit your life to the Word of God. With that in mind, before we jump into this letter, I want to give us just a little bit of historic context. Now, we won't do this each week, but of course, because we're beginning a new letter, it's helpful to know what's going on. Now, we learn as we read this letter that Paul is writing most likely from Rome during his first imprisonment around the early 60s. Not those 60s, all right? And he's writing to a little insignificant church in Colossae. It's located in the Lysias Valley. Now, Colossae was an insignificant little town, mostly made up of agrarian people, that lived in the shadow of the well-known Laodicea. Now, nobody would come to Colossae. Everybody wanted to go to Laodicea. But as Paul picks up his pen, as as if it were, we learned that he hasn't been to the church before. He's never actually met this congregation before. However, he does know their pastor. A number of years earlier, when Paul was preaching and teaching in Ephesus, Epaphras came into town, and he heard Paul preach the gospel, and he repented of his sins and trusted in Christ. And he went back home to Colossae, and he did what every Christian does. He began to tell people about Jesus. Well, after a number of weeks of sharing the gospel, he had enough to start his own little church, and Epaphras became the pastor. Well, as time would tell, Epaphras ran into some problems. Some false teachers began to crept into the church as it was the occasion of many of these churches. False teaching went into the church, and and so he didn't know what to do, and he didn't have any formal theological training. And so what did he do? He traveled to Rome to meet with the Apostle Paul and to get some pastoral advice on some trouble he was facing. You see, this false teaching had crept in that began to confuse the gospel with a kind of mysticism of the day, a kind of works righteousness, an asceticism. I'm more righteous than you because I don't do this. Oh, friend, we're going to deal with some things, aren't we, in a couple of weeks? About how often our righteousness is based on our behavior rather than the finished work of Christ. And so, with this occasion in mind, Paul picks up the pen and writes concerning the supremacy of Christ. In a surprising way, uh, Paul doesn't give Epaphras five steps to a, to a healthy church. He doesn't give Epaphras five steps to a better you. He says, if you want to fix error in the church, if you want to correct theological error, here's what you do, Epaphras. You go preach the truth. 
Go preach the supremacy of Christ. And so, Epaphras stays in Rome, and Paul sends Onesimus and Tychicus with this letter back to the church. Now, we don't know much about these brothers either, other than Onesimus was a slave that's now saved, and he's, he's delivering a letter to Philemon. Perhaps Tychicus was like the enforcer. He's going to come in and kind of clean things up. But regardless, the point that you and I need to take away as we study this book is that false doctrine is corrected by a fuller sense of the greatness and grandeur of Christ. That if we want to turn theological tides, we don't just get our boxing gloves on, if it were, but rather we teach the truth in love. This is what the Apostle Paul is teaching the church in Colossae. In other words... That theological truth corrects theological error. Well, with that in mind, friend, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you've not done so already, let me encourage you to do that. Uh, You will be bored out of your mind if you don't have a Bible open. I don't have much to say this morning. Jesus has some things to say. This would probably be encouraging for you just to have what Jesus has to say open. It's most likely on around 983 in the Pew Bibles. Um... Colossians chapter 1. If you're not accustomed to looking at God's Word, I just encourage you in a couple of number of ways. First, um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, take that pew Bible home with you. Begin reading it. It's our gift to you. Just read it. It's okay. We'll replace it, all right? But we want you to read God's Word. Let me commend also, if you're not accustomed to looking at God's Word, the big number, that's the chapter number. The smaller number is the verse number. And so I'll be referring to number of the big ones and the small ones. So, so just so you don't get lost this morning. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Each week I hope to supply you a propositional truth. What is the point of the passage that, Lord willing, is the point of the sermon? And here's the point Paul has in these very early verses. That Christians are those who have been set apart by God for His good purposes and therefore live in service to Christ for His glory. So the purpose of our time this morning is really to exhort ourselves to submit our lives to God's will as revealed in His Word. We see in this passage this morning... Really, two groups of people living in submission to the will of God. First, we see a man set under authority. And secondly, we, see a, we find a people set apart. Number one, we see in verse one, a man under authority. Notice what Paul writes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul begins his letter uh, not like us. Usually, we wait to the end of our letters to say, sincerely, so-and-so. In this particular time period, they would begin by addressing in a greeting. Hi, it's me writing to you. I hope you're well. And then it would include who the audience was to. And we learn in this particular passage, as Paul begins, that he identifies himself as the author, along with his young protege, Timothy. Now, during this time, Timothy is yet to be sent to Ephesus. He's still under the discipleship and direction, maybe even you could call it an internship, uh, with the Apostle Paul. He's learning how to pastor. Notice here in this verse how Paul describes himself. First, he describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
Now, the word apostle has several meanings throughout the New Testament. The very basic meaning of an apostle is a sent one, one who has been sent with an authoritative message, a a representative, an ambassador, if you will. And so Paul could be identifying himself in that way, but as you look at the language, he says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, We could flip it around and say that Paul, Christ Jesus's apostle. In other words, Paul here in this passage is emphasizing that he is a representative of Jesus, yes, but also that he belongs to Jesus. In other words, he is Jesus's slave. This is how Paul describes himself in Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant or slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul furthers this idea as he goes on in this verse to say, look, notice what he goes, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ, I belong to Christ by the will of God. In other words, Paul was submissive to the will of God in his life. He was a man set under authority. God willed that he be an apostle. Paul didn't, you know, on career day at high school uh, say, you know, I think I want to be an apostle when I grow up. You know, I want to be persecuted. I want to be whipped. I want to be in prison. That sounds like a real fun job. Not at all. He didn't sign up. Of course, we learn from from the great Dr. Luke that, that, uh, that Paul, in Acts chapter 9, was met by King Jesus on the road to, uh, to, the road to Damascus. In other words, uh, Paul was enlisted in Jesus' service, not willingly, but because Jesus was king. Paul was called. And he was eternally set apart for this very purpose. Now, as we get into the letter, this is going to have a very polemic effect. Paul is setting out very early on, in the very first verse, in who is in charge. Now remember, Paul's never met these people. Paul's never preached in their church. Paul's never darkened the door of this congregation. Yet he makes clear that when he speaks, he speaks as one who has authority to speak. When he speaks, he's speaking both to Christians and to the false teachers that he is the authoritative representative of King Jesus. Friend, this letter is a part of canonized Scripture because it is an authoritative word from God. Thus, what is contained in this letter does not merely give us some sage advice. It isn't a guide for us in our quest for life. It is the authoritative, divine Word of God. As we heard earlier in our statement of faith, without any mixture of error. A number of years ago, in 1963, Southern Baptists adopted a new statement of faith in which it changed that particular line that, the, that it contains the will of God. And thankfully, we corrected it in 2000, going back to the original 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith, where it makes clear that all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is God's inspired, infallible word. These are not Paul's words, brothers and sisters. This is not man's word to men, but God's eternal word to man. 
When we read these words, there is a human author, but there is also a divine author. And so let me encourage you, when you read this, read it as if Jesus of Nazareth, with his distinct Galilean accent, is speaking these words. That's how authoritative it is. Don't pit Paul against Jesus is what I'm saying. Because, as we'll see, Paul represents King Jesus. This is what Paul exhorted young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that he was to preach the word because all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, you don't need to take any Greek classes. You don't need to take any Hebrew classes. Frankly, you just need to understand the, Hebrew, the English language. All, friend, means all. All Scripture means all Scripture. Every dot and iota. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples on the sermon in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount? He, he says, if any one of you slick fellas want to come in and try to take one little thing away from the law, all of it, he says. Or as Peter wrote to the church in the Diaspora, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well, he says, to pay attention as the lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen what the Apostle Peter says. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, these are not merely Peter's words or Paul's words. These are Jesus' words. And to disobey them, Peter says, is to disobey Jesus. For no prophecy, Peter says, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are the Spirit's words. To say then that the Scripture is authoritative is to say that it is therefore binding upon the will and conscience of men and women. Thus, friend, we must order our lives around them. If this letter is the authoritative word from Jesus, the risen and ascended Christ, then this word is binding on your life. There is no wiggle room. There is no yeah, but. There is no excuse. We come to know the one true and living God through this letter. Thus, let me commend you, friend, to its regular reading. If this truly is the treasure of divine inspiration, would it not logically make sense that we spend our lives getting to know the one true and living God through it? How foolish it is to think that we have in our hands access to the knowledge of God, yet we'd rather spend our time fishing on a lake or playing baseball or doing whatever you like to do for entertainment. Friend, there's nothing wrong with those things, but they must not come before knowing this God who has sent His Son to die for your sins. And your life will be radically changed as you read. Because as you read the Word of God, you come to know God better. 
and you will know and understand your sin better and your need for redemption that is in Christ. Friends, as Christians, we live in submission to the will of God. That's what we do. The Apostle Paul models this for us. Our will is bent or conformed in submission to God's good purposes. You want to know the will of God? Obey His Word. And there you'll be in God's will. God's will for your life is for you to live in obedience to Him. Well, this is further developed in verse 2. A people set apart. We see not only a man under authority in this passage, but look at verse 2. We see a people that is set apart. Now, Paul lists here in verse 2 five characteristics of a Christian people. He, He rattles off a number of characteristics of these Colossians. Notice what he says, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We see five characteristics here of a people set apart. Number one, we see they're holy. Number two, we see they're faithful. Number number three, we see they're a family. Number four, we see they're unified with Christ. Number five, we see they're blessed. Notice with me here, verse, verse two, that they're a holy people. To the saints. That's what he writes. He says, I'm writing this letter to the saints. He describes them as saints. Now, now to the modern ear, when, we, when you hear the word saints or the weird word holy, it often suggests in your mind a moral quality about a person. When we say a person is holy, we often have in mind someone who is morally perfect or upright. Likewise, when we say that God is holy, earlier we sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And often, probably in your mind, you thought, man, God is perfect. God is without sin. God is morally upright. And He is all of those things. But, but that is not how the Old Testament uses the word holy. See, to be holy means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be distinct, to be different. This is made clear in the conversation that Moses has with Pharaoh. Uh, Perhaps you're familiar with the number of plagues that God uh, poured out on the nation of Egypt in judgment. Well, in one such occasion, Moses and Pharaoh are having a conversation, and Moses makes clear to Pharaoh, he says, you know, really what's going on here, Pharaoh, is God is displaying his character for the world to see. And on one of these occasions of their conversations, he says, But be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. You see, God, when he displays his holiness, he is displaying his character of otherliness. So when we say that God is holy, we mean that he is not like anything or anyone else in all creation. He is set apart from creation. He is distinct and different. Of course, this makes sense that Paul would even bring this idea up when we consider chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. In this beautiful Christ hymn where we see Jesus set apart from creation as the one who rules and reigns over all of the cosmos. Jesus is distinct, set apart, holy. And so, here in verse 2, to say that His people are to be holy is to mean that they are to be set apart. That God's people are to be distinct from the creation around them. That doesn't mean different in the, in the weird sense, alright? 
but distinct, not like the world in which they live. We are called out of the world. Well, this, of course, is why Paul would write in chapter 3 that they were to put off the old self and put on the new self, being renewed after the image of their Creator. For you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, and behold, the new has come. Or as Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. You see, God's people are set apart by God to be distinct. This is what it means to be a saint. To be a saint means that you are distinct. Paul goes on, though, and he says that they're not only saints. Notice here in verse 2, they are faithful. Faithful. Remember, Paul has never seen this congregation before. I keep bringing this up because it's important. Where did he get all of this from? How, how does he know about them? What is it about this church that made their reputation known halfway across the world, if it were, all the way to Rome? Well, it was their pastor. Remember, Epaphras, their pastor, has traveled to Rome to visit Paul. And as their pastor sat in that cold Roman prison cell and described his congregation, he described them as faithful. And so they were. In fact, I wondered this morning, how would your pastor describe you? How are you known? They were known for their faithfulness, their trustworthiness. That's the idea that Paul is conveying here. Not merely that they had faith in Christ, but that they were faithful to Christ. They were trustworthy. They were dependable. They were not shifting in the winds, but they were a solid rock because they were depending on the solid rock. This is how Christians ought to be known, as faithful not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They were trustworthy. Well, he goes on. Not only were they saints and not only were they faithful, but notice what he says to the saints and faithful brothers. And every word that Paul writes has intentionality about it. He's not just throwing words out because he's wordy. He describes them here as brothers. Now, I mentioned this on Wednesday night, and for those that weren't in attendance, uh, you can hear it a little bit now. When you see that word brother in the New Testament, oftentimes it's better to translate that as brothers and sisters, as the ESV footnote there indicates, modern scholarship. So if a sister was sitting in the congregation and they heard that word, they would have immediately known that Paul was not merely writing the letter to the men of the church, the males in the church, but to the females, the women of the church. And so, a better translation, as the CSB and the NIV have translated it, as brothers and sisters. In other words, he describes in this passage the, the church as a family. They were siblings. They were brothers and sisters. They, they, they weren't individually individual family units. They were all one big family together as he would write later in chapter 3, that they were to bear with one another. And if anyone had a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. 
I know you're excited now to get into the Colossians. Forgiving one another because we're in a family. Or as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We got one family name in this church, all right? And, and that's the name Jesus, all right? We all bear the same family name. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, the same blood, the blood of Christ, flows through you as it does in me. Number four, we see here that the fourth characteristic he describes in verse 2 is that they are in Christ, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this is one of Paul's favorite phrases, in Christ. And it has a lot of different meanings and different contexts. But right here in this particular passage, what Paul is saying is that they were Christians. That they were in such a relationship with Jesus that they looked like Jesus. You ever wonder where the word Christian came from? Well, in the book of Acts, Luke records for us that it was actually not a term of endearment, but of derision. That in Antioch, what they would do is they were like, look at all those little Christs running around. Those little minions of Jesus. They all look like Jesus. They talk like Jesus. They act like Jesus. They're Christians. You see, we often, in American life, throw that term around like it, like it has no meaning. To be a Christian means that you look like Jesus looks like. You think like Jesus thinks. You talk like Jesus, and you act like Jesus. And these particular saints were marked off as little Christ because they lived in such proximity to King Jesus that they started to think like Jesus and talk like Jesus. But fifthly here in this passage, we see that these Christians were blessed. Finally, as Paul transitions to really the main body of the letter that we'll pick up next week, He asks God, he says, God, would you bless this congregation? This isn't just mere formula. This isn't just because he begins every every letter with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is intentionality why we sing the doxology this morning. Because sometimes in the life of church, we get so accustomed to the same old, same old, that we forget that what we are doing here has intentionality. Mona and I were talking before the service. I said, you know, isn't it interesting that everything we're doing today is because we're commanded to do it? Like, at the end of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, we're going to sing a hymn after it. Why? Because we sat down and thought, hey, you know, it'd be kind of fun and creative to sing a hymn after we do the Lord's Supper. No. Because what did Jesus do after he broke bread in the upper room with his disciples? Well, the apostles tell us that they left singing a hymn. So, for 2,000 years after we take the Lord's Supper, we sing a hymn. And so Paul here in this particular passage wants them to know more and more of God's grace. He says, "I want God, will you show them your grace? Now, grace is God's unmerited favor towards them. They knew God's grace. They were saved. But friends, we, we, we never graduate from grace. We never graduate from it. We need grace until Jesus calls us home. 
Not only grace, they needed to know the peace of God. He wanted them to fully understand the peace of God in their life. Now, peace here that Paul is using is not tranquility. All right, this isn't like some sort of inner peace. You know, they're at war with their conscience or soul or something silly like this, but rather civility. In other words, they were once at war with God because of their sinful rebellion, but now they are at peace. God has laid down his armor. Wow. Why? Because he's no longer at war with them. Why? Because he's super nice and just a really benevolent God, and he just loves us so much. He's just like, we're like little squishy teddy bears to God. Not at all. Because he killed his son instead of killing you. Instead of executing them for their rebellion against him, he executed his own son. He sent his son to die the death we deserved and the death they deserved. This is why Paul puts forward in chapter 2 that you were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and that God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He didn't nail some piece of paper to the cross, some legal document. He nailed his own son to the cross that you might live forever in relationship to him. Notice here in this passage also the source of grace and peace is from God our Father. We don't have time to think about this, but we'll delve into this idea a little bit more about the fatherhood of God, that He is our Father. Uh, Friend, you could spend all afternoon just thinking about this one particular theological truth. You know, so many of us have terrible fathers. We've not had good experiences with fathers. But you have a Father in God who will never leave you nor forsake you, and will never abandon you. It's a reminder this morning that you and I do not merit grace. We cannot earn peace with God, but we are mere recipients of God's goodness. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not a work of your own. It is a gift of God that no man may boast. That's the gospel we believe. Friend, what... Paul is describing in these verses is not the extraordinary Christian. It's it's not the radical Christian he describes, but the ordinary Christian. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, do these characteristics describe you? If we were to call up your non-Christian friends this morning and ask them, to describe your character, would any one of these five come up in the conversation? Are you known as holy, distinct from the world? Or do you think like the world and talk like the world? What about faithful? Are you trustworthy? Are you dependable? Can other people depend on you? Are you loyal to Christ? What about family? No, I don't mean the family sitting in the pew next to you. I mean this this family. Do you see the members of this congregation as family or merely obstacles in your way? 
Do you treat those around you as siblings, as brothers and sisters? Friend, if you're a Christian this morning, I want you to know one truth before we leave this point. That you're blessed in Christ. Do you have a feeling sense of the treasure of knowing the one true and living God? That grace and peace are yours through Christ? Friend, you do not need to fear that God hates you if you have repented and trusted in Christ. You are a recipient, brother. You are a recipient, sister, of grace and peace. God is not at war with you. Friend, He is not angry with you this morning because you didn't get up early and read your Bible. Or because you didn't pray this morning. Or you didn't give enough. Or because you didn't attend Sunday school. God isn't mad at you this morning because if you're in Christ, God's love for you is based on His love for Jesus. Friend, God loves you most because He loves His Son best. That's the truth that we believe in the Gospel. Well, friends, as Christians, we are to be set apart by God's good and perfect will for His glory. Mark Twain once wrote that faith is believing what you know ain't so. Now, if you didn't know, Mark Twain was an atheist, all right? For some in the world, the Christian faith is nothing more than believing the unbelievable, trusting in nonsense. But for the Christian, our faith is in the risen and ascended Lord. We know in part and we believe in part, and when the perfect is made known clear, we will know fully. And so we depend our souls on this Word. Our lives revolve around this Word. Our church gatherings revolve around this Word. Every aspect from morning to evening revolves around God's revealed will through His Word. And this is what we sing so often. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent words. You lack faith? Oh, it's right here, friend. Gain faith. What more can He say than to you He hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled? The soul that leans on Jesus for repose, I will not, I will not desert to His foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I, I will not, no, never, He says, forsake. For in this truly is, in His Word, our hope in life and death. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that we might know you better through your word. Teach us to love you, to know you, and to obey you. Break our wills to your will, that we might join with our Savior, King Jesus, in praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 